Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www. 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope all of you are having a great week. Packed show tonight. 
We're going to break down that blowout <laughs> that the Suns just put on the Mavericks. And then we're going to break down the blowout that the Heat put on the Sixers. And then we're going to do some previews for tomorrow, which I think is going to be a really, really interesting night of basketball. Then if you guys stick around for the end, we're going to talk a little bit of Lakers and specifically the Jeannie Buss interview and some of the issues that I have with the things that she said to Bill Plaschke of the LA Times. A couple of quick housekeeping notes before we get started tonight. <clears throat> Make sure you like this video and subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so that you can stay up to speed about all the stuff we've got coming up on the horizon. We're going to be live every day this week. We're going to push through uh, this, this stretch here in the conference semis and the conference finals. So make sure you come back after every big game. We will be here with breakdowns in the weeds as well as film stuff as we get further away from the games. And last but not least, follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT. It's the best place to stay up to speed with the video content that I put out that supports all the things that we talk about on the show. But we're going to start about the Suns. And, you know, there's a theme here tonight. I like to have a theme to the show if I can, if there are enough things that line up. And there's a post-game quote from Eric Spolstra tonight. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head the, who the gentleman was who asked the question, but someone asked Eric Spolstra about, you know, fighting through screens. I talked about how after game four or late into game four, because Philly had some really interesting counters to the front and back help uh, system that Miami was using to guard Embiid. They had some interest, interesting counters, and so they were fighting through those switches more or avoiding switches as much as they could to try to keep Bam on Embiid. And so someone asked Eric Spolster that. Uh, basically was like, hey, it looked like you were trying to keep Bam on Joel, not switch as much. Like, uh, what's the deal with that? And, and Spolster kind of went on a little rant for about a minute where he basically talked about how, you know, you do game plans, you study the film, you come up with a scheme and you implement that strategy in practice. And then you go out into the game and you try to execute. And he talks about how more often than not, you get out there and a lot of the stuff that's in the game plan either immediately doesn't work or you don't get much of a chance to try to implement it because of circumstances that are out of your control. And he said, but there's one thing that we did control tonight. Eric Spolster said, we made multiple efforts all over the floor. And he said, he basically talked about how that's what ends up being the controlling factor in most cases. And we do talk schemes on this show, and we spend a lot, all of you guys who have been listening know that I, we like to get into the weeds there, but it's just one of those things where more often than not, that ends up being the determining factor. And one of the interesting things that happened, that, that specific circumstance applies a lot more to the Sixers game, because the Sixers came in and completely mailed it in tonight. But I also thought it was interesting as it relates to role players and the difference between the way these two teams, Dallas and Phoenix, have looked at home versus on the road. Phoenix is two and three on the road in these playoffs. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the 2008 Celtics who struggled to win on the road early in their playoff run, although they had some key pivotal wins, just like the Suns team has. They had a huge win in game six in New Orleans, and they had a huge win in game three in New Orleans when that series was tied at one. So I know that they're capable of that. But why is it, do you guys think, that you know one guy on their home floor feels a certain amount of comfort and confidence, and then when he gets on the road, it doesn't feel the same. And it generally applies to role players because most stars around the league are kind of immune to that kind of thing, right? And I have a theory. There's no exact science. My theory is that like players derive confidence from hustle plays and from defense. I've always told my high school kids that I coach because it's the same thing I used to tell myself when I go through a slump. 
when you're not shooting well, if things aren't going your way in the things that are out of your control, focus on the things that you do have control over. Defend like crazy. Try to make plays. Because if you make plays in maybe it's a big offensive rebound or running the floor in transition for a dunk or a layup or a defensive rotation where you blow up a play, that makes you feel good about yourself. And that's what gives you the confidence to then knock down the shot in your next opportunity. And I think it's easier to work hard on defense and to make hustle plays when you're at home because you're feeding off of the general energy of the crowd and the endorphin rush and everything that comes from making a big play in front of 20,000 people. So that's my theory. But for whatever reason in this series, Dallas in particular, but it's affected Phoenix as well, they have these different punches, right? And I always talk about how in any playoff matchup, you have like your best punch and you have your worst punch and you're going to land somewhere in between on most nights, right? But like maybe the worst punch for the better team is lesser than the best punch for the worst team. And that's how you lose games. That's how a series goes to six or goes to five or goes to seven, even though the better team is, you know, going to end up winning the series. And so this has been one of those series, Dallas's best punch, what they, which they seem to only be capable of throwing at home, particularly on offense, the ability to knock down shots and guys on the perimeter creating their own shots for whatever reason, that punch is good enough to beat the bad punch that Phoenix is throwing on the road. But then we go back to Phoenix and it's like Dallas is overmatched because Phoenix's best punch, which they are most likely to throw at home, is way better than what Dallas can throw, in particular on the defensive end. Phoenix hit a level defensively in their containment tonight that was not even recognizable compared to what happened in games three and games four. There was some interesting strategy stuff. Like, for instance, like Phoenix and Dallas in particular are are implementing two very different strategies with how to handle perimeter initiators. So Dallas is trying to get the ball out of Chris Paul's hands and trying to get the ball out of Devin Booker's hands when they have a chance. And they want to rotate around on the back. And that's been a consistent strategy for them all season. All year long, they've been a double and recover team. That's what they fed on during the last two-thirds of the season when they went on their defensive run. Whereas Dallas, on offense, Phoenix's strategy is like, we're going to single coverage Luka, and we're going to stay glued to all these role players, and if Luka beats us going for 45 points, so be it. And they're two different, they're very unique strategies in a bunch of different ways, because it can blow up on you in, in either situation. So for instance, like Phoenix went with the, you know, in, uh, when they were in, uh, um, in Dallas, they went with that strategy. And Luca beat him, and J- Jalen Brunson beat him. Jalen Brunson got going, and he beat they, and they beat him. And then over the course of the game, they had to send some more help, and then everyone else started making shots. But then they got into game, they got into tonight, and you saw the other side of that coin. Luca looks comfortable; he's getting whatever shots he wants. Jalen Brunson played pretty well in Phoenix for the first time in this series after looking really bad in games one and two. Spencer Dinwiddie is still completely a wall. That's a whole other story. But what you saw is no one else was getting shots. Maxi Kleba didn't go and get going. Dorian Finney-Smith made eight threes in game four. Different type of player tonight. That's the advantage is it throws everyone out of whack, especially against this particular Dallas style of offense, which we'll get to in a minute. You know, there's CP3 over the course of his career has a reputation for being a slow player. He's very methodical and similar to Luka in a lot of ways. Like Luka, you're going to inbound the ball and he's going to walk the ball up the floor. He's going to get into the offense at like 15, 14 seconds, right? 
And by the time he creates his first advantage, there's only like six or seven seconds left. And so when he kicks to shooters on the wing, they have, uh, they can shoot and they might be able to attack the rim, but there's not enough time to continue to make multiple rotations. And that used to be an issue with Chris Paul as well. To Chris Paul's credit, he's been adaptable in this Phoenix system. Dallas is 30th in pace this year. They strangle the pace of the game and they play incredibly slow. That's the way they play. It's the only way they play. Phoenix is eighth in pace, which is kind of remarkable with Chris Paul on the roster. And it's a credit to him. Quicker decisions, adjusting his game as he is aged, being more willing to cede responsibility. Now, seeding responsibility is easy when you have that much talent surrounding you. The predicament with Luka is a little bit different, but it's interesting seeing the difference between those two styles because the quick style with Phoenix you get down the floor and you're initiating your offense at 20 seconds instead of 15 and you make that first comp you compromise the defense with 12 or 13 seconds left now you're kicking it to the wing and he has time to attack that closeout and further compromise the defense and then kick it to someone else who might have the best opportunity that's where phoenix is getting all their great shot quality especially with Dallas and how aggressive they're being on all of Chris Paul's pick and rolls, like a lot of trapping, a lot of trying to get the ball out of their hands. So they're getting really good, you know, defensive rotation in that first action. And then they have enough time to do multiple things on the possession. That's the advantage of going quick. And this is, this is where I have to be a little bit critical of Luca because I think Luca's is incredible. And I do think that it's important to add context here. Part of the reason why Luca is so heliocentric and so slow is because he has so much on his plate. Jalen Brunson's going to have a big payday this summer, and I'm happy for him because he didn't make nearly enough this year for what he did. But the truth of the matter with Jalen Brunson is he's not the same level of player as any of the other perimeter initiators in this playoff run. Like he's not even as good as like a Drew Holiday, for instance, in Milwaukee, right? So the reality is, is Luca has to have, and Spencer Dinwiddie, we just talked about, has been nowhere to be found offensively. And so Luca has so much on his plate, that's why he plays slow, to conserve energy, to make it so that he's not sprinting as much up and down the floor. That's why he tries to save energy on the defensive end, although he's been better defensively as the series has progressed. He does that out of necessity. But there's a downside to that. Couple things. First of all, like we just talked about, when you don't make quick decisions, the possession starts slowly. You don't compromise the defense early enough in the possession. You don't give your guys enough chance to, to continue to make plays off of that. But secondly, it affects rhythm. And I think this is a big part of why the role players didn't play super well tonight and why they haven't played super well on the road. Like when you have a guy standing on the perimeter, holding the ball that long, it just throws you out of whack. If you're standing in the corner for 17 seconds and then finally the ball pops into your hand with three seconds left, it's tough. And again, like the thing with the thing with it from Lucas perspective is you have to acknowledge it's a product of a situation. And as far as team building goes moving forward, that's something they're going to have to address. And when it looks good, it looks great, man. When Lucas really cooking, when he's getting to his spots and he's making stuff, when the shooters he's kicking to are making shots, it looks great. It's not like James Harden. James Harden used to do a version of this that was even worse because of the fact that when he would do it, he would always attack from the exact same spots on the floor and do the exact same move. So his personal efficiency and effectiveness would crater as series progress. 
Luca has a ton of variety. It attacks from a ton of different spots on the floor. He'll mix in post-ups. He'll mix in high isolations. He'll mix in pick and roll. He does everything, and that's great. But playing at this pace has downsides. You could not score tonight. No one looked comfortable other than you and a little bit of Jalen Brunson. So that's the downside there. And, you know, this is where one of the things that I've, I've grown to appreciate, I've always been a LeBron fan. You guys know that. But like as LeBron is aged and we're looking at this new crop of superstars, you start to see the reasons why LeBron is the second best player to ever play the game and maybe the first. You start to see the reasons and the way and, and the way that they have allowed LeBron to separate himself. Kind of like LeBron is basically what Luca is, but he's capable of seeding responsibility. LeBron, like the heliocentric LeBron ball is way easier for guys to play with than the heliocentric Luca ball because LeBron is actually like desperate for other people to make plays. He loves playing with playmakers. He wants to get rid of the ball quickly. LeBron does make quicker decisions. And then also he has the physical conditioning to thrive in an up and down environment. He does attack and transition all the time in a way that Luca doesn't. And he can be deeply impactful on the defensive end of the floor. And it's just kind of interesting because Ever since LeBron won the title as a heliocentric guy twice, basically 2016 and 2020, ever since then, no one's been able to do it. Harden couldn't do it. Luka couldn't do it. And I think you're seeing the reasons why. You need the variety. You need the physical conditioning to be able to hold up. You also need to be able to change pace more. You can't just strangle the pace of the game. You have to have the ability to get into a flow sometimes so that your teammates can get going. When you remember those like 2017 Cavs teams, they were scoring quickly in transition off of LeBron pushing the ball and guys were running the floor. There was a flow to it. And so those are the, those are the little details as Luca continues to develop that he's going to have to figure out. One last note on this series, CP3. He's in his first eight playoff games in this run, he averaged 23 points per game. In the last three games, he's averaged eight. And in that, he had a disastrous seven turnover game in game three. And in game four, he had this weird game where he was getting into foul trouble, making really silly decisions, gambles, and things along those lines that were above or beneath the basketball IQ of a player of Chris Paul's caliber. Just really strange. And then tonight, he was tonight. Chris Paul was good, great on the defensive end, you know, did a lot of the stuff as a, uh, uh, as a playmaker that we expect from Chris. But his scoring just has fallen off. And I don't know what the deal is there. And I hope it's not anything significant. I hope he's not hurt. There are some scheme-related things there. Dallas is, ever since the Game 2 debacle, when Chris Paul destroyed them at the end, Dallas is erring on the side of sending more attention to Chris. More traps, more uh, uh, more two guys going with him on the ball screen, the more aggressive drop coverages, that kind of thing. They're doing stuff to try to dissuade Chris. The thing that concerns me is, if you're going to beat the really good teams, like Dallas is a puncher's chance, dark horse title contender. That's great. But you're going to have to go through Golden State, and then you're probably going to have to go through Boston or Miami or Milwaukee. Three really, really good teams that are a lot better than this Dallas team. So you're going to need Chris to be able to score. And one of the issues was, is last year in that postseason run, Chris was amazing until suddenly he ran into the team that was at full strength. He looked great against the Lakers without Anthony Davis. He looked great against the Nuggets without Jamal Murray. He looked great against the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard. 
But then all of a sudden he ran into Drew Holiday in a full strength Bucks team that ran a really good drop coverage and suddenly he couldn't score. And so that would be my, my fear if I'm a Suns fan is that Chris Paul seems to be tailing off a little bit. Now the silver lining to that and the difference between this year and last year, I think Devin Booker is a much better basketball player this year than he was last year. It's showing in his consistency. This guy is amazing every night, which is the hallmark of greatness, which we'll talk about a little bit later when we get into Joel Embiid. Like every night, bringing that same level intensity and, and, and impact, that's what, the, that's what the best guys do that differentiates them from the guys below. And so that is a huge, obvious swing factor that helps, you know, compensate for some of Chris Paul. But the other thing too is just Mikael Bridges is better. Cam Johnson is better. DeAndre Ayton was unbelievable today. He's got this like quick catch turnaround jumper over his right shoulder that's completely unguardable. That's turned into a really nice release valve for Phoenix to try to rescue possessions. Phoenix is better than they were last year, so it might not matter. But my guess is because the rest of the league is better, because Boston is better, because Golden State is in this field and they weren't last year. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started to see a little more of your scalp? Are you unhappy with your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many root causes at play, and Nutrafol addresses them through a multi-targeted, whole-body approach. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole-body health. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription, or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code Hoops. That's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Hoops, H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Hoops. 
I think they are going to need that out of Chris Paul. So it'll be really interesting to see if he can regain that form. Hopefully it's just a product of whatever weirdness happened in Dallas, and hopefully he can shake it off at some point if you're a Suns fan. All right, before we move on, I'm going to kick it to a word from our sponsor. The playoffs are heating up, and you can make every game feel like Game 7 on FanDuel Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. Throughout the playoffs, all customers can place a no-sweat, same-game parlay each week. You'll get up to $20 in free bets if you don't win. FanDuel has so many ways to play, and best of all, when you do win, you'll get paid faster than a fast break. My favorite same-game parlay this week is Boston to win Game 5 by at least 5.5 points, and for Drew Holiday to go under 21 and a half. He's been great in the two wins, but in both Boston wins, Drew Holiday has scored less than 20 points. I think Boston's going to put on a defensive clinic in Game 5. That's how I think it's going to go down. New to FanDuel? Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code JasonT. Once again, that's promo code JasonT. And if you already have an account, you're all set to bet. No sweat. Either way, you'll get up to $20 in free bets if your same-game parlay during the playoffs doesn't win. FanDuel Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. All right, let's move on to that absolute travesty of a basketball game that was Philly rolling up into Miami, repeatedly getting punched in the face and doing absolutely nothing about it and just sitting there and saying, I'll take another one right here. That was a very, very strange basketball game. And you know, like, you guys know me. I like to get into the weeds. It's the way I, it's the way I, that I like to break down the game. I like to talk X's and O's. I like to talk about counters. I like to talk about coverages. I like to talk about all that stuff. Here's the problem. I can't talk about any of that stuff if the team isn't trying. I can't talk about the way Miami's coverage was working or not working or the way Philly's coverages were working or not working when one of the teams mailed in that basketball game. Think of it like this. like James Harden, who is... Pretty, you know, he has an established reputation as a guy that can shrink away from big games. More often than not. Game four, what he did was the unusual circumstance, right? He was the best sixer today by a mile. He was the only guy that looked like he cared about what was happening on the floor. He wasn't fantastic defensively, but nobody was. But at least on the offensive end, he was repeatedly applying rim pressure, getting feet into the paint. Pretty much everything James Harden initiated went well, and anything anybody else did went poorly. I want to give some credit to Miami before we move on. You know, Miami's a... they. You just know going into that game that they're not going to mail it in, right? They're well-coached. They're disciplined. From training camp on, they're a team that is committed to effort. I've been low on Miami all year because I don't think they have the top-end talent to compete with some of the best teams in the league. I think Jimmy Butler's probably like the sixth best player remaining in this playoff field, so I don't, I'm not as high on Miami as other people. But if there's one thing you could say about Miami, they're not going to leave points on the table. They're not going to leave opportunities on the table. They are going to squeeze their sponge to get every drop of potential success that that team can get out. Whereas Philly feels like the exact opposite of that. So credit to Miami, credit to Eric Spolstra. Jimmy Butler continues to be the best player in this series, even though I think Joel Embiid's a better player than him overall. Yeah, like Jimmy's been the better player in the series. He's been fantastic. That uh, We're not going to get into it right now, but I'm incredibly intrigued by a potential Boston Celtics, Miami Heat, Eastern Conference Finals. I think it's going to be a defensive slugfest for the ages, but we're not going to get into that right now. Miami's an interesting team, but today the story is Philly. Today, the story is Philly in a 2-2 series 
going into a game where Miami clearly approached it as if it was a must-win game, the opportunity to swing the series, whereas Philly seemed to go into it like, it's cool, we got game six in Philly. We'll get him in game seven. Which, guess what? You're not guaranteed to get game six. Which is exactly why you have to treat game five like a must-win and come out with the requisite effort. It's just embarrassing from Philly. Down the line. Like I said, James Harden was the best effort on the table uh, on the team. I got I I have to be I have to be very critical of Joel Embiid today. And here's why. Because Joel Embiid fancies himself as one of the best basketball players in the world. Joel Embiid thinks he deserved to win MVP. Joel Embiid thinks that when you guys are at the sports bar or at work or wherever it is that you're talking basketball, they think he thinks that his name should come up first when you're ranking basketball players. Here's the problem with that, Joel. There's an expectation that comes with that. The guy that you're pissed off got the MVP over you? There wasn't a single moment in that series against the Warriors where you felt like he wasn't caring. That you, that you felt like he was mailing in the game. And I get that he's injured. I get that he's banged up. He's got stuff going on with his thumb. He's got stuff going on with his face. But here's the thing. Did anybody cut Steph Curry slack in 2016 for playing on a sprained knee? Did anybody cut LeBron slack for playing with back spasm and knee tendonitis in 2015? Did anybody cut Giannis slack in 2020, or excuse me, in 2021 last year when he sprained his, literally inverted his knee in the conference finals? Did anybody cut him any slack when he fell down 2-0 to the Phoenix Suns in the finals? No. Because again, no one's saying the injuries aren't a factor, but everyone's dealing with stuff. Jimmy Butler missed a playoff game in this series with knee stuff. Everyone's banged up. Everyone's dealing with stuff. And no one's going to cut you slack for your stuff, especially when you fancy yourself one of the best players in the world. This is the standard that comes with being in that conversation. Is there any chance in the world that in Game 5 tomorrow, you think Giannis is going to roll up into Boston and lay down and just get beat? There's no way. I think Boston's going to win big tomorrow. But I know for a fact Giannis is going to come out like the Tasmanian devil trying to do everything he can to impact that game. And look, maybe that's the kind of guy Embiid is. Maybe he's the guy that some nights he feels it, some nights he doesn't. Chris Haynes talked about in the broadcast, he talked about going up to him and shoot around. And in shoot around, he said he was distancing himself from the team, not talking to anybody, very short, short-spoken, wouldn't... Would, would only make small talk with Chris Haynes, wouldn't elaborate on anything. Chris Haynes went over to the coaching staff and was like, is Joel sick? And they're like, no, he's fine. So he was pouting today about who knows what. Pouting about the injuries, I don't know. Pouting about the MVP, I don't know. The guys from inside the NBA on TNT certainly took their chance to get all over Embiid for, uh, for potentially pouting about the MVP, which is... Look, I, I'm not going to jump to that conclusion, but whatever it is that's bothering you, there's no doubt that like these kinds of things can have an effect on you mentally. But here's the thing. All the guys at the top of the league also are dealing with that kind of stuff. And again, this is why I am so slow to push guys above established guys at the top of the league. This is why I want to see year-in, year-out success. This is why I waited till Giannis' second dominant postseason before I put him as my guy that I think is the best player in the world. Like, if we start looking at the Joel Embiid stuff in his playoff career since 2017 to 2018, he's 27 and 12 in the regular season, goes down to 24 and 11 in the playoffs. It's a pretty significant drop-off. 24 points per game is not a dominant offensive player in the NBA playoffs. 
You know, like, I'll cut you some slack for that Boston series two years ago. You were overmatched. Ben Simmons was out. You had no business losing to the Atlanta Hawks. Ben Simmons or not. Passing up on a dunk or not. You had no business losing to the Atlanta Hawks. If you swap Giannis for Embiid in that series, does anybody think that the Sixers are losing to the Atlanta Hawks? It's just, this is the standard we have to hold the guys to at the top of the league. And look, and it's not just about the scoring. Like, Embiid was embarrassingly bad on defense tonight. Embarrassingly bad. I have some clips on my uh, Twitter feed you can look at. He's just like passively kind of waving at guys as they come into the lane. He's not embarrassed. Miami can cannot score against Philly in the half court when Joel Embiid is engaged as a rim protector. We saw that in games three and game four. But the mark of greatness, the mark of being the best guy, is that you do it in game five too. Maybe you miss shots. Maybe your field goal percentage doesn't look great. Maybe you have some sloppy turnovers. That kind of thing can happen on a game-in, game-out basis. But your effort, your attacking the basketball game, that has to be the same every single night. And if it's not, you can't be in that conversation. And look, it's not over for Joel Embiid. I, I'm not trying to... This isn't like a James Harden situation where we have a decade of evidence that this, that this guy just kind of struggles in these settings. This isn't that type of deal. But what it is is yet another playoff round where Philly looks like they're probably going to lose to a team that they were very capable of beating. And their best player doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And, and again, it's like, maybe he goes into game six and he dominates, and maybe he goes into game seven and he dominates, and then you know what? I'll get up on here and I'll credit him for dominating. But the, the type of guy who would dominate game six and game seven in this series is the same type of guy that would have come into game five tonight and attacked the Miami Heat, and he just didn't. And it's just disappointing. Like, you are mad that you didn't get named MVP, but the guy who got named MVP seems to care more about his team winning playoff games than you do at this point. That's a problem, man. And again, I, I understand the injuries, but it's just try to convince Jimmy Butler, who missed a playoff game this year with a sore knee, that you should be cut some slack because of injuries. Try to convince Giannis. Try to convince all these guys that have long, dominant playoff runs despite having a bad injury. It's part of the game. Yours is not debilitating. Your lower body is fine. You're mobile. You can move. You can protect the freaking rim, which is your job on this defense. It's just embarrassing. And it, 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 I'm just disappointed. I'm disappointed because, you know, for a guy who's as ambitious as he is to try to be at the top, you'd think he'd, you'd think he'd take that a little bit more seriously. But it is what it is. I, I'm sorry I don't have more, like, in the details, X's and O's stuff to get into in this game. I just don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth it when you have a team that comes in and mails it in like that. So, I mean, is the series over? No, but you'd be stupid to pick anybody but Miami at this point because Philly is demonstrating to you right in front of us that they don't want it as bad. So, there you go. It is what it is. But yeah, like I, I at this point, I think you have to pick Miami. And I, I'm just disappointed in Joel Embiid. And I hope at some point he understands that this kind of performance is not okay if you're going to be considered one of the top guys. Hi, it's Colin Coward. I started the volume to bring you some of the most authentic voices in sports. While you're here, make sure you hit subscribe. Thanks. All right, let's take a few minutes to preview a couple of Game 5s tomorrow that are going to be really interesting, one of which I think is going to be a very good betting opportunity. We'll get to that 
here in a minute. I want to start with the Bucks and the Celtics. So I dove into a bunch of the film and I dove into a bunch of the numbers again this morning. I wanted to share with you guys what I saw. A lot of it is going kind of as I expected um, based on the stuff that we saw before the series. So the story of this series that I've been harping on nonstop has been half-court basketball. Half-court basketball is what wins NBA playoff series because for the most part, over the course of a series, teams will figure out how to slow each other down in transition, and they'll understand that that's where the series is going to be won. So throughout this series, in every one of the first three games, Boston was the better half-court team by a pretty significant margin, and that has continued into Game 4. Milwaukee actually had their best half-court offense game of the series. They scored 0.94 points per half-court possession, which is actually an okay number. It's not a great number, but it's an okay number, and it's certainly a lot better than they have been doing. As, uh, as a point of perspective, that's almost 20 points per 100 possessions better than they did in Game 3. Okay, Here's the problem, though. Boston also had their best half-court game of the series. They scored 1.09 points per 100 possessions, or excuse me, per possession in the half-court. So another way to look at that to make it a little bit simple for you guys, if we had 100 half-court possessions, Boston was 15 points better than Milwaukee in the half-court in Game 4. That gap has considerably grown larger each game in this series. It's been the story of this series, and it's the reason why I was so confident in Boston to begin with. A couple of other things that are not great if you're a Milwaukee Bucks fan. Boston finally didn't shoot well. They shot 40% on wide-open threes in uh, the first round. They shot 42% on wide-open threes in the first three games of this series. They were only 6-for-17 in Game 4. And it wasn't enough for Milwaukee to get a win there. They finally got some of that like shot value, shot result stuff to go their way, and it didn't work. And when you factor in that Milwaukee dominated on the offensive glass, they had a 13-4 to offensive rebound advantage. That's nine extra possessions. If you factor in, they had a 17-11 to points off a of turnovers advantage. So they won a bunch of these areas of the game that would theoretically put you in a position to win. It just so happens that, hey, guess what? Boston gets stronger as the series goes along as well. They had their best offensive game of the series, and it was too much for them to overcome. A couple other things. Boston, this is what's insane. Boston in just the fourth quarters of this series is outscoring Milwaukee by 32 Point three points per 100 possessions. That's an outrageous number. So a lot of stuff going Boston's way in the metrics. Stuff that I saw on the film, and I'll uh, if you guys go to my Twitter feed, you'll actually see some clips that it, that demonstrate exactly what I'm talking about. But the shots that Boston was getting were wide open. Like if you look at you know, so Milwaukee's up 80 to 70 in the late third quarter, and Boston gets a stop, runs out in transition. There's a, a quick uh, swing pass, swing pass to Derek White. He's wide open in the corner. It is a completely unguarded shot. The next possession down, Marcus Smart's kind of working his way into the lane, and both uh, uh, yeah, a Drew, Lo- a Drew Holiday and Brooke Lopez are lingering around the basket. Al Horford is standing at the free throw line, completely unguarded, and he makes it. It's a wide open shot. I'm not really sure what else you could expect to happen there. Then next possession down, it's Jason Tatum getting all the way all the way to the rim for a layup. Next possession down, it's the one where Al Horford gets the dunk on Giannis where he beats him on a closeout and there's no backside help and he dunks on everybody. Going into the fourth quarter, it's just open shot after open shot after open shot for Boston Celtics players. That's why 
that's manifesting as a plus 32.3 net rating in fourth quarters. Boston's shot quality is winning the day. Go on the other end for Milwaukee. There are some good shots in there, but so much is reliant on Giannis running people over and getting into the rim, which fatigue is starting to play a role in the series. Giannis is starting to show some signs that he is getting tired as the series is progressing. You know, there's it's a lot of like Drew Holiday gets in the lane and picks up his dribble and he's completely swarmed by Celtics, but he happens to know in the back of his head that Brooke happens to be at the rim and he turns and throws a blind pass up at the rim and Brooke Lopez catches it and dunks it. Again, unbelievable basketball play, but it's a low percentage play in the sense that like it required an unbelievable play from Drew Holiday to get a basket there. Giannis working into the lane, Pump fake, pump fake. Finally, Jason Tatum gambles and he can work in the lane and get a dunk. Or that beautiful pass he had when he was on the left block and he works into the lane out of the post and hits Brook Lopez underneath the basket on a jump pass. Like, really impressive stuff, but it's hard. It's hard for Milwaukee to score, whereas the stuff Boston's getting is easy. And generally, in a small sample size, you can beat shot quality difference, right? If Just because you happen to make them and they happen to miss them. But in any sort of significant sample size, the team that's getting the better shots is going to win, and Boston's been getting the better shots, to their credit. That's why they went up big in that fourth quarter. That's why I think they're going to win game, uh, game five at home. I believe Boston's a five-and-a-half point favorite. I would be on that side of the line. I think this game is going to look a lot like game two. I think Boston's going to come out in front of their home crowd and have a little bit of a coming out party in this series because in the series they've been the they've haven't been the underdog but they've been the team playing from behind for the the whole time this is their first opportunity to take a lead and I think they're going to do so moving on to Grizz Warriors so a couple things I, I I think this is a really interesting betting opportunity I think Golden State's clearly going to win the series I expect them to close them out at six but at home especially without jaw if they continue to play big all of that length and size and athleticism feeding on the energy of that Memphis crowd with the intensity and the urgency of being down in the series three games to one. I think Memphis, I think this is a buzzsaw type of game. I think this is a game that won't necessarily be close. I wouldn't be surprised if Memphis won by 10 or 15 points. I think it's a good opportunity for Memphis to get one more game. Not an indicator of the series. Still think Golden State wins the series. I just think this is a really tough closeout team, a closeout game to, to win against a really good team. Golden State has won this series with their experience. Their experience will obviously give them a chance. Don't it's it's not one of those things where I'm counting Golden State out. I just think this is an opportunity for Memphis to get one more win. A couple of notes that I wanted to hit on uh, from Draymond Green's reaction to this series. So, first of all, he talked about... Uh, I always like it when you hear these players mention things that we specifically talk about on the show. Because one, it's just as an indicator that we're doing the work. That we're in the weeds, that we're watching the film, we're doing what needs to be done to actually know what's happening on the floor. And so when you hear guys like Draymond come and say the same thing, that's a good sign for us. It means that we're doing our job right, which is what we're supposed to do. So uh, Draymond specifically shouted out rebounding in this series, which is what I talked about was a huge indicator coming into this series. Memphis was one of the most dominant offensive rebounding teams in the league. In half-court settings, I think they were rebounding 35% of their own misses in the regular season, which is just an absolutely insane number. And that was going to be that physical wear and tear element that I was worried about. Would Golden State be able to hold up physically in this series? And Draymond pointed out, they've out-rebounded Memphis in all four games. That's an amazing accomplishment. And that's not done 
with their, you know, it's not a physical mismatch for them that they're winning. It's straight up effort and just giving a shit more than Memphis to win that battle because Memphis has the bodies to kill them on the glass and they just haven't been able to do so. A couple of specific guys that I think have been huge, you know, driving forces of this. And we talked about this on our show. I told you guys, Otto Porter Jr. and Andrew Wiggins and them and their athleticism and size crashing from the wing while guys like Looney and Draymond have been stuck in box outs underneath the basket. That's been a huge part of why Golden State has been able to win some of this rebounding battle. To give you an idea, with Otto Porter Jr., and Andrew Wiggins on the floor in this series, Golden State is grabbing 60.2% of available rebounds. That's an unbelievable number. They're, uh, they are uh, uh, gathering 40.9% of their own misses. So that's like every possession is basically 1.5 possessions almost because they're getting all of these additional offensive rebounds. Just a massive credit to those guys and the job they've done uh, fighting on the glass. And then last but not least, uh, Draymond mentioned another thing we talked about on the show, and that's the job that Steph Curry's doing on Desmond Bain. Now, in Desmond Bain's defense, he's dealing with some back stuff. That stuff's no fun. But Steph has always been an underrated defensive player, and he's done an amazing job guarding Desmond Bain in the series and removing him from the series the way Draymond said he did has put a lot more of that shot-making responsibility on Ja, which is part of what has caused Memphis to struggle in this series whenever Ja hasn't had the basketball. So I'm still picking Golden State. Still think they have control over this series. I just think this is a good betting opportunity. I think Memphis has a good chance of winning Game 5 behind the strength of their size and athleticism on their home floor. So again, plus 2.5 for a team at home that has the capability of beating Golden State like that. think it's a good bet. And then I would bet on Golden State in Game 6 to close out the series. All right, last but not least tonight, I want to complain about the Los Angeles Lakers because as is always the case with uh, a shit show, uh, any anything or person or company or any entity that is a shit show has a has a remarkable ability to stay at top of mind because they can't help themselves. They can't help but be a shit show even when all of the, you know, competent folks are doing competent things over here. They just always find a way to jam their way into the conversation. And this time it was Jeannie Buss doing an interview with Bill Plaschke from the LA Times. And there are two specific quotes from this interview that I wanted to hit on that I thought were super interesting. We'll hit them one at a time. So the first, this is from Jeannie again. Quote, I'm growing impatient just because we had the fourth highest payroll in the league. When you spend that kind of money on the luxury tax, you expect to go deep into the playoffs. So yeah, it was gut-wrenching for me to go out on a limb like that and not get the results that we were looking for. I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. End quote. Now, I've covered the Lakers for the last two years, so I'm intimately involved with this with this disaster that it's been. And one of the big things that I've talked about is that the Lakers have a real chance to fix things this summer because you have all you need in terms of a core foundation. You have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And let's pretend LeBron declined. I thought LeBron was the second or third best player in the world this season. I thought he had an underrated season on a really bad team. But let's let's pretend for the sake of argument that in his 20th season, he'll be the seventh or eighth best player in the league, which I think he has a chance to be better than that. But let's let's pretend he's the seventh or eighth best player in the league. Anthony Davis, when he's healthy, is the probably the 12th or 13th best player in the league, right? So you've got two of the top 12 or 13 players in the NBA, and both of them are two-way players, and they represent your front court. 
meaning like that's your foundational defensive, you know, th- that's your defensive foundation, those two guys. You have an opportunity to bring in a good coach. You have an opportunity to make moves on the margins. You have two first-round draft picks that you can spend this summer in trades. And in the Russell Westbrook trade situation, we've seen lots of examples of pretty solid opportunities that have come up. The Charlotte opportunity potentially going after the likes of Gordon Hayward and like Terry Rozier or even like a Mason Plumlee if you wanted to get a backup center. There's a bunch of options there that Indiana Pacers offer centering around uh, um, Buddy Heald and Malcolm Brogdon. That's a decent opportunity. So the Russell Westbrook trade, it looks like it's materializing into there might be some decent options there. Then that you also have Taylor Horton Tucker and Kendrick Nunn. Taylor Horton Tucker had a really bad year, but... At his salary number, which is right around $10 million, there's going to be some team out there that sees some intrigue or some value there. And Kendrick Nunn at $5 million as a backup point guard, obviously this year was really weird with his knee issues, but that's a player that somebody out there might want. And if you factor in the two draft picks that they can attach to either of those trades, you have the ability to bring some talent in. And then in addition to that, You've got, you found some key rotational pieces last year on the fringes. Wanyan Gabriel was a really interesting athletic forward. Stanley Johnson showed a lot of potential as a defensive primary option. Austin Reeves, we've talked a lot about him as a really, really solid defensive player who's great at attacking closeouts and kind of a perfect fifth guy in any lineup as a glue guy. So you've got a core foundation here. But you have to make the right trades this offseason and you have to make the right free agent signings. And what I talked about was the only way that that's going to happen is if the people in charge, and in my opinion, the three people running the Lakers are Jeannie Buss, Rob Palenka, and LeBron James. Those are the three people that have the most power and influence in that organization. Those three people have to all acknowledge and accept responsibility for what happened. Because the first step to fixing any problem is to admit that you were wrong. And the most disappointing thing over the course of this last couple of months after the Lakers season ended is no one seems to be accepting responsibility. I've seen hit pieces directed at Frank Vogel. I've seen hit pieces directed at Russell Westbrook. And don't get me wrong, both of those guys deserve a lot of blame for what happened this year. But the most blame falls on Jeannie Buss's lap. I'd argue she's first in blame, Rob Palink is second in blame, and LeBron is third in blame. But those three are clearly the top three in blame. LeBron wanted Russell Westbrook. It was a terrible idea. Rob and Jeannie should have shut that down. If they had smart basketball people running the team, they would have shot it down. But they don't. They don't have smart basketball people running the team. The smartest basketball people are Jesse and Joey Buss, and they just run the scouting department. That's why you keep getting Austin Reeves. That's why you keep getting Taylor Horton Tucker. That's why you keep getting Kyle Kuzma. That's why you keep getting really quality players further down in the draft or even undrafted. Those are the only two smart basketball people in that front office. Rob Palinka, any GM worth his salt, would have immediately been like, LeBron, I understand he's your buddy. Terrible idea. Can't go that route. But... Rob Plink is not a smart basketball guy. He's an agent who was a friend of Kobe Bryant's who got the job because Kobe Bryant went to Jeannie and said, please give Rob the job. That's what happened. And Jeannie Buss from the top down, her entire persona has consistently been favor friends and family over the most qualified person for the job, which is precisely how you end up in a predicament where the guy in charge of your basketball operations is not a really smart basketball guy. There is a, we've talked a lot about this on the show. There's a level of work diving into the film 
being like literally addicted to watching basketball, not just NBA basketball, but rural basketball in parts of the world that, that the quality's not great. And Rob Pelink's just not that guy. He's more of a personality than he is a grinder at this point. And that's the predicament that they're in. And what I see when I see this quote is I see Jeannie Buss taking responsibility for wanting to fix the problem, but not taking responsibility for the problem. And that's precisely what's wrong, which is exactly what is manifested. She's leaning on Phil Jackson now. She's leaning on Magic Johnson now. Magic Johnson literally decided he had the brilliant idea. Let's take the basketball out of LeBron James's hands. We need more Lance Stevenson with the ball. We need more Michael Beasley with the ball. We need more Rajon Rondo with the ball. Less LeBron with the ball, please. That was his grand idea. And then, then we have Kurt Rambis, too. Like, this, is, this was the other quote that Jeannie had defending Kurt Rambis in this article. Quote, I know that there's been some unfair criticism of Kurt Rambis. I want to remind people he's been involved in the NBA for close to 40 years, that he has been a part of championship teams both as a player and assistant coach. He is someone I admire for his basketball knowledge. Guys, again, this is why I talk about how, like, I played college basketball. That's a much lower level than the NBA, obviously, but that does not mean anything about me understanding the NBA. There, any player in the NBA, any coach in the NBA that's playing basketball or being involved with basketball is not the same as being in the weeds of basketball right now. Kurt Rambis, at one point in time, was heavily involved in the NBA as a player. Then he tried as a coach, and it went really poorly. Now he's a special advisor to Jeannie. Do you think Kurt Rambis is on League Pass watching 10 games a night? No. Do you think Kurt Rambis, Kurt Rambis is hanging out watching games in Europe? No. Therefore, he is not qualified to make these decisions. You need basketball people that are in the front office, that are in front of computer screens watching basketball nonstop, especially modern basketball, so they understand why things are working. That's why Kurt Rambis allegedly went into Frank Vogel's coaches meeting and literally said, quote unquote, we need to play more DeAndre Jordan. If you watched any NBA basketball over the course of the last few years, you would know that's a terrible idea. He doesn't because he didn't watch enough basketball. He should not be involved in player personnel decisions. And to Jeannie Buss's point, just because you've been involved in the NBA doesn't mean that you're a smart basketball guy. It's not the case. There are bloggers that never have picked up a basketball in competitive situations ever in their life who understand modern NBA basketball more than Kurt Rambis does. That concept has nothing to do with your playing experience. Ideally, you want both. Ideally, you want someone who played in the NBA, coached in the NBA, and is a grinder. But those guys are few and far between. They're hard to find. Most players are done with their playing career and they want to work less, as they should. They worked too hard when they were playing. But this whole thing just reeks to me of yet another example of the Lakers refusing to accept responsibility for why they're in their predicament. And it's exactly why, if you ask me, Jason, do you think the Lakers will get back into title contention next year? I say it's possible, but not likely. Because in order for it to happen, you need competence. And hoping for competence from this Laker front office is a fool's errand. All right, guys, that is all I have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate your guys' support as always. Remember, a couple of housekeeping details. We will be going live every single night this week. So come hang out after the biggest games, and we will be breaking them down live here on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. And make sure you follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT. 
so you can see the video content that I do to back up the things that I talk about on the show. As always, I sincerely appreciate your guys' support and we will see you tomorrow. The volume. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.